Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5? We're going to look at just the end of Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you've been seeing this argument that's begun to build, this picture that's begun to build of who Jesus is as our great high priest. But as we're going to see in verse 11, we're going to break from that as the writer to the Hebrews pauses that to address us specifically. And this is what he says in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Hear now God's word. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child." But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's pray together. Father, in one breath we read that we've become dull of hearing, and in the very next we ask that you would make us quick to hear. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? Would you open our ears and our hearts to hear from you and to truly be changed? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I wonder if you can uh, relate to the scene from your childhood. You're at a friend's house, and you guys are getting into a little mischief together, and you do something wrong, and the friend's mom catches you, and she has you both in a room, but she doesn't really know you. She just knows her son, and so she really begins to rebuke her son. I mean, she's just laying into him, and you're standing there next to him, and she's not looking at you, but you kind of understand you're guilty by association, right? Whatever she's saying to her son, in a loud voice, she's also saying to you, because you're just as guilty, you just happen not to be her son. I, I, maybe that's just my childhood, but I feel that when I read this passage. I, I feel the guiltiness by association, because the writer to the Hebrews, he doesn't know you, he doesn't know me, he's writing to a different church in a different time, under different circumstances, and yet he breaks from what he's saying to lean in and to address these things in his hearers' hearts, and by association, he's addressing these things in our lives and our hearts. We're guilty by association. As soon as we open this letter and we peek into this mail and we see this, this is the way God's word works. It's written to this church, but it is written for our benefit and we hear it. If we're going to be honest with our Bibles, if we're going to handle this book correctly, we need to hear the bad with the good, right? We need to be available and willing to hear the rebuke alongside of the encouragement. And so this morning, I want us to take that seriously. I want us just to walk line by line and to hear this rebuke that's being laid against this church that the writer is writing to, but also to us by association. I want us to hear that and then see what the writer implies by these things. Now the writer, he's begun, like we said, this new great mountain peak of Jesus. We've been kind of likening these descriptions of Jesus to mountains, to climbing mountains together. And he climbs up one peak and he shows us just how breathtaking this view of Jesus is. And when we can't feel like we can bear anymore, he climbs another peak and he shows us even grander things about Jesus. And now in chapter 5, he starts climbing his new and greatest mountain peak, which is Jesus as our great high priest. 
And as he talks about these things, he begins to build steam. As he begins in the end of chapter 5 and all the way through chapter 6, He's describing a Jesus who he's comparing to the Levitical priesthood. And then he's finding Jesus in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And then he's locating Jesus' priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And just as he's gaining momentum to describe these things, he stops in verse 11. And look at this again together. He says, about this we have much to say. All that I've been describing about Jesus as the great high priest There's so much more to say about this, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, if you were the church originally receiving this letter and you were hearing all these things about Jesus as the great high priest, and then you heard verse 11, which would have been read aloud to a house church of 30 or 40 people, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. This thing got really intense really quick. He continues in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so you have this building regression here. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us. He's saying you've become dull of hearing. It's like you're an adolescent and things go in one year and then out the other. And not only that, but you should be teachers by this point, but you're not. You need someone to teach you, and so it's like you're a kindergartner. You can't read because you need someone to teach you your ABCs again. And not only that, but you should be eating solid food and not drinking milk. You should have your powers of discernment trained by this point, but you don't. And so you're like an infant. You can't even eat carrot mush. You've reverted back to a baby bottle. It's this regression, adolescent, student, and then infant. We've regressed in our walk with the Lord, and we're being called on it. I don't know what we came this morning to hear from God's word, a lift and encouragement, but all of a sudden this thing is starting to feel like the Cleveland Cavaliers halftime locker room. I mean, this thing got intense, quick, and we don't know where he's going to go with this thing. What's so powerful and convicting to me about the nature of this rebuke is that the writer and the spirit through the writer has an incredible way to show us in this rebuke what it is that we're missing. Our apathy is costing us something and it's costing those around us something. Because there's a couple of different ways that you can rebuke another person, right? You could address something and rebuke a person and correct them by saying what's wrong with them, but you could also rebuke a person and correct them by saying this is what you're missing out on. Now let me just illustrate that very briefly. You think about a marriage, a husband and wife, where the husband is beginning to work too hard. He's a workaholic. He's putting in long hours at his work, and he comes home one night, And his wife has already put the kids to bed, and so she really lays into him, and she confronts him, and she says, you're never here, you're absolutely no help to me, I have to do everything by myself. Now that might be absolutely right and true, and there may be a place for her to say that to her husband, and that's one kind of rebuke that can be laid from one person to another, But there's also another way that could be, in certain circumstances, even deeper and sweeter than that. And that is the same husband comes home after the kids are in bed, and the wife simply says to him, Babe, I miss you. The kids miss you. 
We miss having you around. Your absence is felt in our house. Do you see the two different ways the rebuke is being laid? One is what's wrong with you. One is this is what you're missing and what we're missing. I promise you, no matter how much you scream the former, it's going to be hard to speak louder than the latter rebuke in those scenarios. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to us. What's felt is what is missing in our Christian lives. Let's look at this threefold rebuke through that lens. First of all, he says, you are dull of hearing, and that is such a shame because there is so much more to tell you. It's a shame that you've become dull of hearing because I have so much more to explain about who Jesus is. I think about the first time our family went to the Riverbank Zoo, and we walked in the front gate, and my kids saw, if you've ever been there, the statues of the lion, the metal lions that are sitting there right by the front gate, and our kids just swarmed on those things. And they loved them, and they were climbing on them, and they were hugging them, and they were taking pictures with them, and they were petting them, and they were naming them, and Daddy is pacing back and forth saying, I've spent an arm and a leg to get in this place. If you will just walk with me, we're going to see real freaking lions like a hundred feet from here. Come on, let's go, let's move. We got to see it. And daddy is losing his mind. (laughs) Friends, I know you know that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. I know you know that he saved you and you're never going to graduate from that truth. You never get beyond that truth. That's going to be a theme of your worship forever. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying it's as if you and I are climbing over these cast metal statues of the elementary principles of the oracles of God and he is pleading with us, I have real lions to show you. There's so much more for you to see. I want you to hear, the writer to the Hebrews says, about Jesus's perfect priesthood. You need to hear that and you need to know that. I want to share with you about his throne room intercession that happens right here and right now. I want to tell you about his mediation of a new and a better covenant, of his entrance into a heavenly holy of holies. I want to tell you about his mercy seat, his eternal redemption, his once for all sacrifice for sins. I want to tell you about a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I want to tell you about a city that is to come. There is a lifetime to learn from this word, and then when we die and stand before God, there is an eternal life to learn about who God is and why he is worthy of our worship. And if we will commit ourselves to this book and this community together and make this thing a part of us, we will hear those things. But I tell you right now, there are a hundred voices that compete for this voice And they make us dull of hearing. That's a shame because there's so much more to know about who Jesus is. Number two, he says you ought to be teachers by this point. In other words, it's a shame because there's so much more for you to tell others. There's so much more for you to learn and hear. And there's so much more for you to tell others. You know what's so interesting about this word of rebuke? He's essentially saying the assumption is that every single Christian is a teacher. Every one of us who's a believer is considered a teacher, and it is a regression if we are not in a place of our life where we're teaching, but we're only learning. He's kind of working with this basic assumption 
we're always going to be learners. We understand that. But when we first become a believers, we're going to do a lot more listening than speaking. We're going to be learning a lot more. And then we immediately, for all of us, kind of graduate into this place where we become teachers and sharers. Now, most of us probably hear that and think, I'm never going to have a formal teaching role that doesn't really describe me. But we're working on the most basic definition of teaching, which according to the Apostle Paul is speaking truth in love. Every single believer, every single person filled by the Spirit is called to speak truth in love. As you receive this truth, you find small and little ways in your life with your spouse, with your friend, with your roommate, with your classmate, with your neighbor. What I am receiving, I turn around and I share this good news with another person. I am called to be a teacher. We keep thinking that we're reading our Bibles for ourselves. I keep thinking that I open this thing to, to boost my own spiritual journey between me and God. And my Bible keeps telling me, you read and study this thing for the sake of every single person who is sitting in this room. You study this thing for the sake of every single person that Jesus will place in your life. And when you become dull of hearing, and when other voices cloud out this voice, it doesn't just affect me, it affects every single person around me because there is so much more for me to tell. There's so much more for me to hear from God and then share with the people that God has placed in my life. It's an absolute shame to not be speaking these things to each other. Well, number three, finally, he says, you need milk. And that's a shame because there's so much more for you to do. So much more for you to hear. There's so much more for you to teach. And now there's so much more for you to do. This is what he describes milk as. Verse 13, look at this. He says, milk is for those who are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now you take that idea, us as as drinkers of milk versus solid food in verse 14, which he contrasts to say those who are trained to distinguish good from evil. So the problem here is not just that we're uneducated, but also that we are unskilled. Our slowness to hear, our slowness to teach, is breeding in us a slowness to do. The less time we spend with the one who is right and true and good and pure, and the less we are able to distinguish in our lives what is wrong and evil and false. That's happening to us. You take the sum of this threefold rebuke, and you take the sum of what it is that we're missing, and this thing falls heavy upon us. We're dull of hearing. We ought to be teachers at this point. We need milk and not solid food. That's a rebuke that falls heavy on every single person, but it also falls sweetly on us. Because it's a word that doesn't just say, shame on you, stop that. It's an invitation that says, if you will dedicate yourself to this thing, if you will open your ears to this thing, if you will draw near to God in this moment, there is so much more for you. There is so much more for you to hear and for you to teach and for you to do because God wants to do these things in you. I think that's the encouragement in a passage like this. We read a rebuke like this, and it falls heavy on us, and we think about all the ways we fall short in doing these things, but there's an encouragement in here, albeit a backhanded one. The reason the writer tells us all of this is because these things are actually possible in us once again. 
in this wonderful, wildly free new life in the Spirit, the life that every single Christian believer has been given, there's not a single person who is too old, too young, too far gone, too dull to change. The writer is describing this world of hearing well, of teaching well, of doing well, because it is a very real possibility for us. These things are in store for all of us who believe. It is possible to change. There's no reason to keep telling somebody something that they can't possibly do anything about. You think about a child who you talk to about looking both ways before they cross the street. There's no reason to beat a child over the head again and again with that truth if there's no hope for them to actually learn that on their own. No. The reason we do that, the reason we instill that, the reason we gently correct again and again is because we envision this world in which a child will be able to approach a crosswalk and look both ways and cross the street safely without us speaking to them. That's the exact same thing that the writer to the Hebrews is doing. He's not smacking us around with these lofty ideals that we'll never achieve. And so when we get confronted with the word, we don't get to whine to the word and say, woe is me, I'll never do this. When somebody takes these truths from the word and they address these things with us, we don't get to whimper in self-loathing and say, this is kind of the person I am and I'm always going to be this way. I know we've done that. I know we've said that to each other. I know we've said that to ourselves and to God, but the word is grabbing us and wrestling with us and saying, that's not true change is possible. We hear these words, we repent, and we trust that God will change us. The writer to the Hebrews agrees with that assessment. The writer to the Hebrews, when he speaks these words of correction to us, he agrees that that's what's going to happen in us. Because by the end of this section, in chapter 6, verse 9, he writes this, Though we speak in this way, though I've said all of these very hard things to you, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. The reason I'm so hard with you right now, the reason I'm so abrupt with my rebuke, is because I feel sure of better things on your behalf. And then, even though the writer said that we are too dull to keep up with all he has to say about Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, By the end of this chapter, chapter 6, and the beginning of chapter 7, the writer to the Hebrews is going to begin by speaking of Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. After being told we're too dull to hear those things and confessing that to the Lord and opening our ears before him, I promise the name Melchizedek never sounded so good to us because it's as if he is saying, God is changing you, and you are now ready, one chapter later, to begin to hear these things about the Jesus you serve. You're ready to hear, you're ready to teach, you're ready to do, because when you receive this word of rebuke, you confess it before the Lord, and you look to God, and he will change you. Let's pray together. God, we ask for these very things. We ask that you would surprise us in ways that we feel like we can't be surprised. We've walked in ways so long and so hard in such a direction that we feel too dull to change. But you do surprise us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you use this word to affect change in our lives? We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.